You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry, a dynamic, growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for His glory. Good afternoon. I know it feels like we should say good morning, but it's, it is technically good afternoon. Great to see you here, and uh, particularly if you're here new among us, I'd like to extend my welcome to you. Great to have you here. We pray that you might feel at home in the presence of God, and uh, we're thrilled that you're here. Just on the back of what Pastor Esther said earlier, I want to encourage you to come along on Tuesday evening to the little seminar we're doing around fasting and prayer and fasting, particularly uh, if this is new to you or you're new-ish to the discipline of fasting. Uh, we'd love you to come, and uh, we're going to be really practical about some of the, uh, not just the, the spiritual side of fasting, but the physical side, and, and really to try and equip you that you might be able to get on board in some way the following week when we're running three days of prayer and fasting. Not a long time, and uh, we said this last week, if you're uh, faithful in praying and fasting longer periods of time as we have done in the past, get on board as you want, but our goal and our aspiration in focusing three days is that all of us would get on board in some way or another and enter and push into God. And as we will say on Tuesday, it's not so much what you fast from, but what you fast to, that we might draw near and reap the benefits of making ourselves available to God. That's this Tuesday uh, evening, a little seminar. Also, uh, we want to say what a joy it was on Friday evening to be a part of uh, a street pastor's commissioning service in the city center. And uh, we've been asked to be involved in that service. And we went along. We didn't even realize till we got there that seven new street pastors that were being commissioned, four of them are from CLM. And uh, so we're really uh, thrilled to find that out. And um, just a great time and a great celebration in a freezing cold building. And uh, we are blessed here, uh, but it was a good reminder uh, of what we have, but, uh, but a very warm service in a coal building, and uh, great to see many of you as the four were on Friday, getting involved with partner ministries within the city, uh, CLM making a difference uh, in the lives of the vulnerable and the needy. Well, I want to dive straight in today, and uh, we are going to be speaking uh, this week, next week, and the week after uh, under the topic of build community, and we are talking about oneness. Let me just ask you to consider for a moment, if you were to look down the centuries of the Christian church from the ascension of Christ until modern day, and you were to consider that Jesus was going to pray for all the followers that would come, all the believers that would come, you know, what do you think his prayer would be? And I know I've just given something away here in a title, but you know, if you were to consider that, you think from his vantage point, imagine he could see or he could anticipate what the church would go through. Don't you think his prayer might be for courage in the face of persecution? Don't you think his prayer might be for discernment in the face of spiritual opposition or that his church would hold true to doctrine in the face of false teaching? Do you think his prayer might be for a spirit-filled people or for purity in the face of sin and corruption, passion in the face of compromise or evangelistic fervor to reach a lost world? And I have no doubt or problem considering that Jesus probably did pray for all of those things and more. And as the great intercessor continues to pray for his people in a multitude of ways, and yet we find in John 17 that Jesus, praying for those that would come, prays for this thing, for oneness. Jesus prays for oneness. John 17, many 
of you will be familiar with these words. This is what he prays. Having prayed for his disciples, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's all of us, by the way. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so the world may believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so they may be brought to complete unity. Then, he says, the world, or he prays, the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Dallas Willard, the great Christian writer, put it like this. God's aim in human history is the creation of an inclusive community of loving persons, with himself included, as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. What we might call Christ-centered community. And uh, as I've said, this week, next week, the week after, we're going to be visiting this important subject. Speaking about community, and I'm aware that word can be used in a, a number of different ways in society, but we're talking about oneness. We're talking about fellowship. We're talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, togetherness. Among believers, brotherhood, sisterhood, the family of God. The Greek word, as you'll find it in Acts, koinonia. The being together, one with another. The loving of one another. Jesus said this in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Bill Hybels gave this definition to community, to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, to serve and to be served, to celebrate and to be celebrated. And, and it's worth saying that although we might just be taking three weeks on this at the start of this year, this little series has been four and a half years in the waiting. For Esther and myself, we passionately believe that Christ-centered community is God's design. We believe with all of our hearts that the purpose of God in the earth is to bring his kingdom into every life and sphere of society. That the king is bringing his kingdom in the earth. He is filling the world and the earth with his glory. Uh, and he has one vehicle to do it and one plan. There is no plan B. And he is doing it through his people, the church. We believe God's plan is that he would come and bring by his kingdom, his rule, his reign, his ways, his love, his grace, his gospel his power, his forgiveness, his calling, his purpose to every person that would open their hearts and he'll do it through the church. But the church will only function as it should where there is Christ-centered community, one with another, a fully effective Christ-centered church. And so over the last four and a half years, we have been waiting till the moment where we feel able to speak about this. And the reason is that when we first arrived here, we probably spent the first 12, 18 months dealing with some necessary critical issues. And we knew to really start tackling community, we had to go deep and we also had to build a structure as well as a culture whereby people could experience community if they want to. And at that time, we had two life groups running in the whole of the church. And if you wanted to, to get into a life group, well, we had a, we had a massive waiting list. And so we knew it needed an overhaul. And over the last three years, we have been training life group leaders in our own home. We've been sharing heart. And by this Easter, we should be at 25 groups. And we're at a place where those who want to be part of community can be part of community. Now, please hear me right. This is not a series about life groups. This is not advertising. This is a series about community. 
we understand that with some cultures are better at community than others. Those of you from a black African heritage, most of you are better at doing community than those of us are from a white British heritage. And community can take place in many different forms. But inside of organized church, our life group structure has been needing to be prepared before we speak about this important subject. But we are passionate about this, not only in our own lives, but theologically, we believe that this matters. This is what Gilbert Bilizikian said in his great book, Community 101. The making of community, and I think we can put this on the screen, may not be regarded as an optional decision for Christians. It is a compelling and irrevocable necessity, a binding divine mandate for all believers at all times. It is possible for humans to reject or alter God's commission for them to build community and to be in community, but this may happen only at the cost of forsaking the creator of community and of betraying his image in us. This cost is enormous since his image in us is the essential attribute that defines our own humanity. What he's saying is we were designed for this. We were created for this. And if we fail to engage in community, we miss out on the very essence of our humanity in the image and likeness of God. I remember teaching some of this stuff to a group of young Christians a few years ago. And one of the girls who was a university student said, but what would you say to my housemate who says that she is a Christian and she has a vibrant relationship with God in prayer in the privacy of her own bedroom and she gets the best teaching in the world through the God channel, but she doesn't need to be part of a church. I said to her, well, you've got to understand, I passionately believe we need to have a vibrant prayer life in the privacy of our own bedroom with God. And I also accept that you can see the best teaching that you can find on the planet through some of Christian TV. But let me tell you this, if that's the sole outworking of your supposed faith in Christ, I personally would not call that Christianity. I don't know what I would call that, but it's not what Jesus modeled. It's not what Jesus commanded. It's not what Jesus died for. It's not what Jesus commissioned and it's not what Jesus is building in the earth because he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I don't know what I would call that, but I wouldn't call that the Christian faith. The outworking of the Christian faith is done in the messy, inconvenient challenge of being among his others, not in isolation of a relationship alone with God. And I hope over these next two or three weeks that some of us might be challenged to consider where we are. Allow me before I go on to share a bit of my own story because I came late to the party on this. God did a work in my life. You see, I became a Christian when I was 17 and and I became very passionate for God very quickly. I became a worshipper and, and I, I started to explore the Bible. I found different teachings that I heard, incredibly exciting. But it, before long, I wanted to work out what was the job of the Christian church. What was it that we should be giving our lives for? I'm that sort of a guy. I'm wired in that way. You know, give me a, a battle to fight. Give me a job to do. Give me a project to get on with. Some of us were a little bit like that. And I wanted to know what's the job here. You know, never mind all this chatting and just being, you know, happy 
family. Well, what are we supposed to be fighting for here? And I remember taking a week to pray and fast, and I read through the book of Acts, and I read it and reread it and reread it with the sole purpose of trying to understand from the book of Acts alone what was the mission of the church? What was the church on with? What should I be giving myself to? And I came to the conclusion personally that it was summed up best in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do. And I gave myself fully to it. I got fully on board with the Great Commission, trying to win people to Jesus and help them mature in their faith. And in my early 30s, the Holy Spirit ambushed me. You see, at that point, I, I, if I look back, I thought vulnerability was uh, for the weak, not for the strong. I thought that, if I'm honest, well, I behaved as if friendship was a luxury I didn't have time for. I was too busy to be on with the task. I thought that confession was, uh, among brothers and sisters was something uh, that was for those who couldn't sort it out and square it with God alone. And in what I might call my relational dysfunctionality, I had somehow surprisingly been positioned as head over life groups, the ministry in the church where I was working full-time as staff. And I went to Chicago to a conference because I had some strategic questions to which I wanted structural answers. And I remember going to try and work out how we would move the ministry to another level, how we would reshape the training and the equipping and the resourcing. And I sat in the first session and I was totally undone. As the speaker started to share some of the things we're going to share over the next three weeks of God's heart and design for every one of us to actively, openly be a part of Christ-centered community. And I realized that I was lacking in my own life. I remember finishing that session and being unable to move. Everybody got up and went to the coffee break and I just sat there like the Holy Spirit had just punched my lights out. I remember weeping over those next three days and knowing that something life-changing was going on in me. And in a way that God alone can stitch you up, we had agreed a few weeks earlier that we were going to take on from some friends of ours who were heading off to the mission field, a group of about 30, 20-somethings. It wasn't a young adults ministry, it was just an oversized life group. And we took this on and we'd met, I think, once or twice when I went off to this conference and I came back and I knew we had an opportunity because God had put us right in the middle of community. And Esther needed no persuading whatsoever. And we just set about, what would it be like if we try to establish authentic community among these brothers and sisters? With no hierarchy, no pretense, open lives, loving one another, sharing, being inclusive, accepting, being quick to forgive, just trying to do the stuff of the New Testament. And we thought when we took this group on, we didn't know if it would work, but inside nine months, the 30 had become 60, and 12 months later, become 120, because what God had designed was irresistible. I could tell you story after story of lives that changed. I remember one young lady who I'll call Sarah coming into our group. She was prickly and thorny and abrasive. I remember kind of saying hello. She wanted hello. You know, it's kind of just like, oh gosh, okay, right, fine. You know, kind of, you didn't need high level discernment to know she had issues. She had an edge. She didn't really want you to get close. You could tell that. But in that season, we came to understand the power of a phrase. It's hard to hate someone whose pain you understand. And we decided we were going to just love this girl. 
And the group loved on this girl. And they wouldn't let her go. And some of the girls got alongside her. And in spite of her thorniness, they just kept loving her and kept loving her. And guess what? Her frostiness began to melt. And she opened her heart up to Jesus. And then she started to share her story. And uh, as often is the case with something like this, when you actually heard the brokenness and the damage of her journey, you understood, in fact, I remember thinking, if I'd gone through what you've gone through, I don't think I'd be as well put together as you are. And something wonderful started to happen in our midst. Christ-centered community. My friends, I believe we were created for community. And, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at Christ redeeming community for us. We're going to look at what it means to be a part of Christ-centered community. Today, I want to focus on being designed for community. And if you've got a Bible, I wonder if you turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, because I think we have to go all the way back to the beginning to understand what God created here. For some of us, this is deeply challenging. This is not how we want to outwork our Christian life. But I want us to try and grasp and understand we will only be everything we were called to be when we have an unfettered relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and an open relationship one with another. This is part of our very design. If we had time, I'd read the whole of chapters one through to three, but for the sake of time, I'm going to pull out a few verses, and and I hope you'll excuse me for reading the scriptures in this way this morning. Starting in Genesis 1 and reading 1 to 3, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Going down to verse 26, it says, Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, In the image of God, he created the male and female, he created them. What happens here is we see that God created the male and female, but then in chapter 2, it's as if the the writer backs up and explains how male and female came about. And in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, The Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a life-giving, sorry, a living being. And down to 16 of chapter 2, the Lord commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then verse 20, partway through, it says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And, and I'd like to make five brief observations from these scriptures that to many of us will be familiar. And the first is that, if I can put it like this, God himself is community. God is community. God says in verse 26 of chapter 1, let us make man in our image. God 
presents himself, this one God presents himself as plural. Let us make man in our image. If you back up to verses 1 to 3, it says, In the beginning God, we we understand the Father of creation. Verse 2, And the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. And then verse 3, And God said, The word of God. John chapter 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Nothing that has been created has been created without him. And so we see the the Father of creation, the Holy Spirit, and the word the one that we come to know as Christ released in those three chapters, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is community. You can go into deeper studies to understand how that runs through Scripture. And we see perfect unity and oneness without reserve. Imagine what community is like inside the Godhead. One divine will, one divine purpose, different and yet equal. That partnership that there is no reserve, no conflict, no hiding, just an openness of being together. But it is not alone. God is not alone. He is with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See how Jesus behaves in the Gospels. My Father, my Father, my Father. This relationship that that continues. In fact, if you study John's Gospel, you'll find in over a hundred times, either two or three members of the Trinity are spoken of together. Jesus says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. After me, one will come, the Holy Spirit, to you. We, we see this amazing work, God, as community. The second observation is that God, this one who is community, made mankind in his image and likeness. If you study the scriptures, you'll see that it doesn't say God made the male in his image and likeness. It says he made mankind in his image and in his likeness, male and female, he created them. That actually we see that he made them in his image. His image and likeness is only actually expressed when there is both male and female. The, the third thing that we find here is that alone was not good. In fact, if you journey through the first six days of creation, you'll see that every time God made something or declared something and it was so, he observes it and says it was good. At the end of day six, when he's created the male and female, he looks at everything he's created and says it's very good. But along the way, there was one thing that was not good and he said it's not good. The man's alone. I want us to understand here, this is a bigger point in understanding our own humanity than marriage. You see, God is community and had created just the man, but the man did not have one of his own. Something was missing because the man was alone. He didn't say it's not good for the man to be unmarried. He said it's not good for the man to be alone. Alone. It it goes on to speak about how the woman was formed in order to solve that problem. It was a problem that the man was alone. But when God had made Another, he said, now that's very good. That's very good. The New Testament's clear that there's great virtue in being single. Jesus himself was unmarried. Paul is understood to have been single. It's not bad to marry, but the issue here is not married, unmarried. It's with someone or alone. The design in humanity is the need for one another. It's not weakness It's wholeness. 
And I think what I had probably ventured into, and I, I'm a personable sort of guy, so when I talk about being relationally dysfunctional, I wouldn't have projected that necessarily, but I knew the reality of my life. I was missing something. You can be part of a crowd and feel lonely. You can live life as an extrovert, but actually be alone because you don't let others into your world. And it's not good to be alone. The, the fourth thing I'd like to pull out of here is they were different but equal. Let's be clear on this. And, and I, we venture a little bit today, not as a major subject, but I don't think we can get around it of some of the gender issues. But here it says that God said, I will find a suit, suitable helper. Some versions historically have used the term help meet. And I think some of these words are going to be horribly misunderstood. The Hebrew word is Ezer, which means a rescuer from that state of affairs. What was the woman formed to rescue him from? Was it that the gardening had become too arduous in Eden? Or he was unable to cook for himself? Or was it that uh, he was struggling to do the ironing of his shirts because, no, he was naked and unashamed? Not an issue. It was that he was alone. And God says, let me bring an Ezer. And just to be clear to you, the major use of Ezer in the Old Testament is of God himself to Israel. The psalmist says, you are my help and my shit. You're my Ezer. Israel has an Ezer that is God. One that is a help. Not one that is subservient, but one that comes to rescue them from their state of affairs. And so the woman comes to rescue him. What is he being rescued from? Aloneness. And in that design, similar to inside the Godhead, they are different, but they are equal in creation. No subordination in the Godhead. No subordination in created community. And fifthly, uh, there was oneness before the fall. It said they became united, they became one flesh, and they were naked and they felt no shame. I passionately believe, my friends, that the way we were created as male and female was that we would be not only in unfettered relationship with God himself, but also in community, one with another. If we look, and as we journey through this week, we'll see that what was formed in the fall became deformed, but in Christ has not been reformed, but has been transformed. This is the gospel. You will find this actually across a multitude of subjects, but it's true in community. We were formed into community that we would be beings that engage in community one with another where there is oneness and openness. In the fall, it was deformed, but in Christ, he comes to redeem community for us. And that's why he prays, oh God, that they might be one like we are one. Oh, that we might restore what was lost in the beginning. And then the world will know you sent me. This is how important this is for us to get this right. Incredible. If you think about it and you journey through the Bible and time doesn't enable us to do that today, but you'll see God's heart and passion, not only for our relationship with him, but our relationships one with another. Consider the Ten Commandments for a moment, and arguably five that are focused towards how we treat God, but five how we treat one another. It matters to the Father. In fact, Jesus, when he comes, he teaches all about relationships. And he says, actually, in Matthew chapter 5, if you're bringing your gift to the altar and you remember you've got an issue with a brother, please, leave your gift where it is. Go and resolve it. Be reconciled to your brother and, and then come to the altar. Any of us who are parents, we understand that you know, if our children are at loggerheads one with another, we, we would yearn that that be resolved. 
before we progress our own journey with them. Something delights a father's heart when their children are getting on together. And so I'd like us today in thinking about how we were designed for community to read on a little bit in Genesis chapter 3. We'll pick up a few verses as well. The serpent has come and, and tempted the woman that she might eat of the fruit of the tree which has been forbidden. And this is what it says, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Which is a lie, by the way, because he's just covered himself. And then he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. It's now God's fault. That woman, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent, he deceived me and I ate. And God goes on and speaks that there will be enmity between the serpent and the woman. And he says to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you'll give birth to children and your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Today, my friends, I want us to understand that three things come into play that were not there before the fall. Three things that kill community, three things that hamper community, and three things that Christ has redeemed us from, and yet we have to take steps into them to escape from them, because in our fallen humanity, we experience them. And and the first one is shame. Can we all say shame? Shame. Shame comes. There is no shame in created community before the fall. In fact, it says at the end of chapter 2, they were naked and unashamed. There was nothing hidden. There was a complete openness between the man and the woman. For us, the thought is like the embarrassment of, you know, of nakedness. In fact, we, we knew a friend who had a revelation about this and she posted her status on Facebook as naked and unashamed. This is probably not a great idea. I don't encourage you to go do that. It can be misunderstood. Brian of Coventry, naked and unashamed. It's like the police will come knocking on your door. But I think we have to understand that there was no shame. There was unfettered relationship. Nothing was hidden or hindered. But in the fall, something happened and they were ashamed. And they covered and they hid. And they... they They didn't want even, it wasn't that they just hid from God, they covered themselves from one another. You see, if we understand it, we encounter shame in our own lives, the desire to hide, which is closely linked to fear, the fear of rejection. And we may not voice it like this, but something happens in us where we can be inclined to say, but if they knew the real me. If they really knew the darkness of my thoughts, if they really knew my past, if they knew what I go through, they would not want to be near to me. And so I will project something different. I will cover 
those aspects of myself which I don't want to be exposed. You see, we, we can sometimes, we project something. You see, I'm not pretending to be somebody I'm not. I'm just pretending to be my best me. I'm not letting you know how I'm really feeling because I'm wearing the big smile. Um, If you ask me how I'm doing, I'm going to say fine and I'm going to look fine. But it doesn't mean I am fine. Because shame means I don't actually want to disclose. And I know there are other reasons why we don't disclose sometimes. But within us, there is something that means we want to hide. Some of that fallenness that Christ came to redeem. And he came that we might take off the mask. And be real one with another. You know, I... In John Altberg's book, Everybody's Normal Until You Get to Know Them. He which is worth thinking about. He quotes Scott Peck from a different drum, and he talks about pseudo-community, artificial community. He says, uh, its hallmark is the avoidance of conflict. In pseudo-community, we keep things safe. We speak in generalities. We say things that those around us will agree with. We tell little white lies to make sure no one's feelings get hurt, no one gets tense. We keep relationships pleasant and well-oiled. Conversations are carefully filtered to make sure no one gets offended. If we feel hurt or irritated, we're careful to hide it. Pseudo-community is agreeable and polite and gentle and stagnant. And ultimately fatal. Marriages can last for decades, sometimes a lifetime. Look quite pleasant on the outside. Not much conflict, not many storms. But the reality is that the husband and wife are living in pseudo-community. They talk about the kids or the job or the mortgage, but it doesn't go beneath the surface. They haven't told the truth in years about their loneliness or hurt or anger. Their sexual desires and frustrations go unnamed. They're disappointed in their marriage and each other, but neither has the guts to speak frankly or honestly And every day they die a little more. Wow. Wow. But Christ came to redeem us that we might experience something deeper. James says, confess your sins one to another. Not a a verse you heard preached on a great deal. Uh, And hear me right. I'm not suggesting that we have to tell everything to everybody. But if we can't tell everything to somebody, we're potentially living under the tyranny of shame. We are hiding. We are not being real. In fact, Bonhoeffer says, in confession, the breakthrough to community comes. If a Christian is in the fellowship of confession with a brother, he will never be alone again anywhere. In the revolution that went on in my own life, I found a brother with whom I could be open and I shared the darkness of my own heart, my vulnerabilities, my weaknesses. And do you know that the wow factor of Christ-centered community is that when you fully open to somebody that you can trust, you're not loved less, but you're loved more for being authentic in that place. This is what Christ died and rose again for, that his children would be one. And I know this is challenging stuff 
here today, but it's also incredibly empowering and releasing. Thinking back to this group that we were a part of, I remember one unforgettable night after about a year where we had an evening of testimonies. In fact, Esther had said, I think we should do a testimony night. I remember saying, what, is that it? Just testimonies? I said, what if it dries up after 10 minutes? Like, what, you know, what's plan B? Should we have a message in the bag? She said, no, let's just do testimonies. So a little run of worship, and then I said, look, you got faith for it, you do it. So, uh, so she, we had a little run of worship, and then she says, right, we're just going to share. Who would like to give a testimony of something that God has done? I remember there's that little pause, but it didn't actually last for long. And one of the young ladies stepped up. She said, I want to share something that God's done. She said, I came to this group and I, I felt loved and I felt safe. And so I shared with some people that a year ago I was bulimic. I had an eating disorder that nobody knew about. I had issues with self-loathing and self-image and I was hiding that from everybody. But as I began to share with some of my sisters, they helped me and they prayed with me. And God took me on an amazing journey. And I want to be able to testify tonight that I'm healed and that I'm free. And, and I want to say thank you. And I remember this little group. I mean, we couldn't actually fit in. I was sitting on the floor. And I remember the group like, woo, it's awesome. It's so cool. It's so cool. And then the next person came up and they said, well, if she's just shared that, I need to share this. And there was another surprise. There was another shot. And one after one after one, people stood up and shared. I understand on, on the Young Adults Weekend Away, there have been a number of these types of testimony times experiencing real community and the safety of brothers and sisters sharing what God is doing in the transformation of our lives in that safe place of the love one to another. And I know this brings great joy to the Father's heart. I know this is what he designed us for. Incredible, unforgettable evening. Went on for about an hour and a half as some of the uh, young adults here, some of their times have done equally. The second thing that we see comes in with the fall after shame is blame. The man blames the woman. In fact, he also blames God. The woman you put here with me and the woman blames the serpent. He deceived me. Outwardly, overt blame breaks community. It puts, as it did between the woman and the serpent, uh, enmity. You see, if I say to you, you were wrong, it's your fault, then we are now at war. But see, what happens is in adulthood, we get beyond it was her fault and she started it. And blame takes on a more subtle form that is equally as dangerous. You see, inwardly, we can internalize accusation. And in doing so, we fail to take responsibility. See, blame is closely tied to pride. God comes to the man and said, what have you done? And he said, not my fault. There's pride. There's a failure to take responsibility. The woman's the same. I was the serpent. And what happens under blame, which is part of the fall, is we fail to take responsibility. I can remember sitting with a man who had committed adultery inside of his marriage and caused uh, all sorts of devastation as can happen when families go through that. And I understand all of us make mistakes and we're all damaged goods in recovery. But I, I remember sitting with him and hearing him say to me, you know, I was under so much pressure. I was exhausted from work. Nobody understood. You know, she listened to me. And I heard this half hour explanation of how it wasn't his fault. And I thought, all of those circumstances may be true, but will you take responsibility that you also made some destructive choices for which you're still paying the price and others around you? You see, if I never have a problem, 
I will not experience community as it was designed to be. If I only ever give help, I can never receive help. And some of us position ourselves that way, but true community is two-way. Now hear me, in maturity, we can become net givers as opposed to net receivers. We can be those that I believe we should. As we grow in Christ, we become more able to give and to bless, and we need less, and yet in true community, we will need something sometimes. That is the journey of life, hello? We will all go through highs and lows. Let's not pretend any of us are always on the mountain. Sometimes we need a friend. I remember sitting with a very capable friend who, whose job took him uh, over around the world. And I remember sitting with him and he didn't seem quite himself. I remember saying, are you okay? And he said, yeah, I'm fine. And I said, no, are you okay really? It's good to ask ourselves, how are you? Good. How are you really? Oh. I said, are you okay really? And he began to weep. And he just utterly come to the end of himself. He was exhausted. He had just worked himself into the ground and he'd run out of steam. This capable person with a, a wonderful family trying to make a great contribution in his local church and lots of other things. He just came to the end of himself and he began to break down. And do you know what? In that place, I didn't think less of him. I thought more of him because he enabled me to be his friend. He let me in. And he took responsibility to be able to say, I'm not good actually. I'm not good, and I need a little bit of help here. Also, if we blame, we fail to take responsibility, and we, we fail to deal with our own rubbish, and we end up bringing our own baggage and rough edges into the community that we're part of. But in true Christ-centered community, we are open to change, and we're also open to be challenged that those who are near to us might be able to speak the truth to us. Hello? This is actually New Testament Christianity that we might be able to come close enough to speak the truth. Let me tell you, if you have a bogey that is on show, it will be a friend that will tell you so. Who knows what I'm talking about? <laughs> Don't let me go through the whole day and get home and realize and nobody had the guts to say. <laughs> Some of us need a friend to tell us, you could have done better there. You know when you said that? Do you know what that sounded like? And not be threatened by that to know that they love us. You know, John Wesley, uh, who was instrumental in a revival in the United Kingdom, established little pockets of community, those who wanted to be part of some of this. And if you wanted to get into one of Wesley's communities, you had to answer these questions. Does any sin, inward or outward, have dominion over you? Do you desire to be told of your faults? Do you desire to be told of all your faults and that plain and clear? Consider, do you desire that we should tell you whatsoever we think, whatsoever we fear, and whatsoever we hear concerning you? Do you desire that in doing this we should come as close as possible, that we should cut to the quick and search your heart to the bottom? And is it your desire and design to be on this and all other occasions entirely open so as to speak everything that is in your heart without exception, disguise, or reserve? Hello? Wow! But the amazing thing was in those days, tens of thousands of people said, yes, I do desire that because I want to be a part of Christ-centered community. And the nation was turned upside down. I know this is demanding, but God is about something incredible. The final thing, and as I come into land, is shame comes in and blame comes in, but we also see rank. 
It's a huge subject. Here in Genesis 2 and 3, we see the foundations of gender hierarchy that have not only dogged society, but dogged the church and dogged too many marriages and homes and families. A distortion, I believe, of God's created order. You see, it says that in the fall, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. But this is not what God designed in the beginning. There is no subordination before the fall. Together, I believe male and female were made in the image and likeness of God. If the man had been superior, it would have said the man was made in the image and likeness of God and the woman was made in the image and likeness of the man. But it doesn't say that. It says that male and female, they were created in the image and likeness of God. And there is no subordination in the Godhead and in created order. But in the fall, we see something very powerful happens. The man who has been formed out of the dust becomes subject to the earth and says, you will toil the land. You will be oppressed by that from which you came. And he says to the woman, uh, your husband will rule over you and you will be oppressed by the one from which you came. But Christ came to redeem all of that, can I say? Christ came to redeem all of that. But if I park for a moment some of the the gender specificity of that issue, we also see that rank enters in. Ranking is part of what distorts community, but is prevalent in our society. You see, there might be gender hierarchy, but there's also been racial hierarchy. There has been ethnic hierarchy, social hierarchy. Some of you have been victims of some of that superiority. But in Christ-centered community, there is no hierarchy. In Christ-centered community, there is no hierarchy. This is one of the beautiful things. This is why Jesus says, pray that they may be one as we are one. Not subordination in the God but as we are one, may they all be one with no superiority in hierarchy. You see, in our fallen humanity, and you see it in the playground, the boys very quickly work out who's the fastest, who's the strongest, who's the toughest, who's the best at football. There's comparison and, and girls in a different way begin to ask the internal question of where they fit and where they rank. Is she prettier than I am? Is she more attractive than I am? And some of the internal questions that that lead to issues with self-image, it's all part of a fallenness that Christ came to redeem. We meet people and we ask them, what do you do? why, Why do we ask them that? Are we really interested in professional standing? It becomes part of society. Hello, what's your name and what do you do? I don't do anything. <laughs> well, you must do something. Do you mean you're a dropout? You know, I mean, what are we doing? What is going on here? I can remember I studied law as a degree, and people say, what are you studying? I'd say law, and they went, oh, as I said before. Now they say, what, what do you do? I say, I'm a pastor, and they go, oh. <laughs> you know, what, what, what is going on? I used to work for a company in sales, a global company, and rank and status was to do with the car that you drove up to a certain level. You got a certain type of car, a mainstream, a VW Passat. But when you got promoted, you got a BMW. When you went beyond that, you got a Mercedes and and, and so on. It went on. And what I noticed was that those of us that were among the the ordinary, uh, we would enter a room and sit down uh, at the table as everybody else. But when management came in, they would somehow see fit not only to put their mobile mobile phone on the table, but their keys on the table. <laughs> and, and, and on their fob, they, they'd managed to leave their BMW fob as their key fob. Just couldn't find another fob. Just, you know, I, I know like my, my kids gave me a fob for Christmas, but I just left this one on and I'm gonna, just going to put it in front of me just so you know what. 
rank. It is rank. It's disgusting. In Christ-centered community, rank, rank is vanity. Rank is vanity, and it does two things to us, and sometimes it can do both things to us, because in rank comes not only vanity, but superiority. And into community, superiority brings an inflated and offensive self, but rank can also bring inferiority, which into community can bring a diminished and defensive self. But in Christ-centered community, thank God, there is no rank. I remember with this group of brothers and sisters, but we would sometimes gather just as brothers. We were an eclectic mix, let me tell you. There were some Oxbridge graduates and there were those who dropped out of school in their mid-teens. There, were, there was the, the unpaid, the highly paid and the no paid. There were some that were incredibly good looking and the rest of us had good faces for radio. But let me tell you, when we came together, when we came together, we were the redeemed of the Lord. We were all those who sat gratefully at the Lord's table, knowing that none of us had been worthy. And it didn't matter what life had served up to this point. Under Jesus, we were just grateful brothers, standing in the challenges of life to pray together, to stand together, to laugh together, to try together, to cry together, and to be the redeemed of the Lord. Hello? This is Christ-centered community. And some of this will push us out of our comfort zone. Some of this will, will push us to places that we never expected to go. But let me tell you, we will experience something so rich and so wonderful for what we were designed in the beginning. As I entered in my little journey to a new challenge of life, I found a richness that I could not have imagined. And I knew I'd been designed for community. See, once you've tasted true community, there's no going back. And if it's a journey you need to go on, I invite you to enter in.